Hi, Restoration. I'm Emily Betzler. You guys have probably been seeing some videos and random things from me over the past couple weeks. Um, I, along with my husband, Colin, we run a ministry called Bought Beautifully, which is a marketplace that transforms lives. And it's a ministry that you guys support monthly and then support specifically um, and importantly next weekend when we will be coming here to pop up for a holiday gift market out in the foyer of the church. Um, and we are so, so excited for this opportunity to be with you and to um, provide um, this holiday gift market. And so I'm just going to take a couple minutes of your time to tell you a little bit more about the heart behind Bought Beautifully, our why, and the work we do, um, and hopefully get you guys really excited for next week. Uh, okay, so before I was with Bought Beautifully, I was a teacher, which means, of course, I made a PowerPoint presentation for you guys. <laughs> Which also means, um, unfortunately, that I, it's not compatible with the technology. So Nate worked some wonders this morning. So we still have the PowerPoint, but it's not as maybe polished as it should be. But So bear with me um, as we do this. And so to start, we're going to do a little activity um, to help you guys get some bigger context of, um, of the world and in the situations in which Bot Beautifully works. So I'm going to ask you guys some questions. I'm going to have you turn and talk to your neighbor, the person in front of you or behind you. You'll take like five seconds to answer each question, and then we'll just keep moving along. So the first question is, how many people are in the world today? Does anyone have any idea? Tell your best guess. <laughs> what do I hear out there? Seven billion? Yeah, so next slide. Actually, according to Google, as of last night, 7.7 .7 billion people live in the world right now. But if you're like me, that number like actually doesn't really register. It's so big, I can't really make sense of it. So for the rest of the activities, we're going to imagine that if the 7.7 .7 billion people were actually 100 people. So does that make sense? So if the world was 100 people, what would it be like? What would these 100 people be like? So the first question is, if the world was 100 people, how many would be male and how many would be female? Any guesses? 50-50. You guys are so good. Next slide. So this is why it's a little off. But yeah, you're right. It would be 50-50. 50 males, 50 females. So if the world was 100 people. Next question. How many people would speak English? So if the world was 100 people, how many people would speak English? Yeah. Oh, you guys are good. Okay, next slide. So 12 people would speak Mandarin, six people would speak Spanish, five would speak English. Here's the rest of the language. And this is as their native tongue. The really crazy, exciting thing is that 60 of the 100 people would speak a native tongue. They would speak 7,000 different languages. So it's kind of cool to remember how diverse God's creation is. Um, okay, next question. How many people, if the world was 100 people, how many people would have electricity and how many people would dry or would own a car? Any ideas? 10, 15? Okay, next slide. Oh, next one. I skipped one, sorry. We can go back to that. Um, so 24 people for electricity, 24 people would not have access to electricity. So 24 out of the, I know, you're good. I should have had prices. She would win. Um, and then vehicles, which this one blows my mind because we feel like in America, like, you're 16 and you got to get a car. If the world was 100 people, only 15 of those people would have a car. So I don't know if we have the ability to go backward, but talking about faith, if you guys had any ideas, if the world was 100 people, how many would be Christian? Let's go back and see. So yeah, so 31, a third of the world would be Christian, 
23 Muslims, 15 Hindus, seven Buddhists, eight other religion, and 16 with no religion. All right, water. So thinking about water, how many people, if the world was 100 people, how many people would, would not have access to clean water? Four, oh, that's, that's pretty good. Okay, so go for two. So it's actually 12. 12 people would not have access to clean water. But that's still like mind-blowing when you think about the fact that we can go to the moon when we have smartphones that can like turn the heat on at our house from here, that there's still 12 people in the world who don't have access to clean water. Okay, the next question, how many people of the 100, how many people live on less than $2 a day? So 15, who said 17? You're really close. So of that 100 people, you guys, 15 of them live on less than $2 a day. Like that fact's just outstanding. And then looking at the rest of them, the majority of the world's population lives between, on, between $2 and $10 a day. So that's about like $3,500 annually. And then what's really staggering is going to the other side. So nine people make between 10 and 50 a day, six between 40 and 90, and only one of the 100 people, if the world was 100 people, only one person makes more than $90 a day. And when you put that in a different context, one person controls 50% of all the money in the world, which is just sort of mind-boggling. So this is the context, this is our world. This is the context in which we live, but it's um, good to sort of we feel like it's really important to sort of pause because it's not the context we always see every day. Um, you know, we kind of are surrounded by the people who are in similar circumstances as us. But if we go to the next slide, um, but God's world is really big and really diverse. And these are the people, these hundred people who are sometimes born in very different circumstances, very different, um, have very different realities, are the people that God has created in his image. And they're the people he calls us to love. As much as he calls us to love our neighbor next to us, he also calls us to love and engage with all these people around the world who have really different realities. And so that is one of the things that Bought Beautifully is really is, is striving to do. And I know you guys are studying the book of Esther, so I'm going to pull in this sort of the most famous quote from that, or scripture from that book. But perhaps you were born as such a time as this. And that really is Bought Beautifully's heart and belief. We believe that the, the church here was born for such a time as this in the context of the other world, that we have a really unique opportunity right now to change the world with how we shop. Um, and so I'm going to give you some examples. So Bob Beautifully partners with 44 different people, partners in 23 different countries to bring their products to a larger market. Um, and I'm going to share a little bit specifically, we're going to talk about Haiti right now. So still getting some world perspective, travel with me to Haiti. Next slide. Haiti is a country in our own hemisphere. It's a short plane ride away. It's a tropical island um, that really should be a tropical paradise, except that it isn't. And for a variety of reasons, it's not. Um, of their 10 million population, more than half live on less than $2 a day. And it's a country that's just in political strife um, and has, you know, unfailing infrastructure, lots of corruption. It's a country just that has very, very difficult circumstances. And in Haiti, we have four different partners who are working there. Um, and, but also in Haiti, there's 10 million people who were created in God's image, who are um, image bearers of Christ, who have dreams and hopes for a brighter future, who want to send their kids to school, who don't want to go to bed hungry, but are born into these circumstances that, that sometimes make those dreams and hopes 
really, really hard, despite their skill sets. So this, this is Jimson, and he's an accountant. He came to this new United States for a college, and he has an accounting degree. Uh, next to him is Mafi, who is an incredible jewelry designer and has six kids. Next to her is Benson, who is a leather maker and has incredible talents. He made this purse. Um, and they have these skills, but there are certain circumstances that keep them from being able to realize them. And it's often the circumstances for which they were born into. So if we go to the next post, it's, a, it's one of Benson's Facebook posts. And this is a quote that we just pulled for him, from him. And it says, why is this hand spread out? Why, what is it asking for? For food for the children, house for her family, or something else for free? No, that is a hand of one of a courageous man, reaching across to anyone who is willing to sign a contract to do, to do to work, <laughs> a contract to do work with people who work with dignity. Our pride and jubilee, which is a community in Haiti that is actually built on the dump, um, is when we open our hands, it's not to ask, but to reach out, or to reach a route to work. But because of his circumstances, this reality of using his incredible skills and, and talents is often, or doesn't necessarily come easy. There's huge hurdles. And this is where our partners come in. Our partners come in there into communities like this, whether it's poverty in Haiti or forced prostitution in India or being a person with disabilities in Jordan um, or being a woman in so many countries. Our partners come in and they work with these people and these communities and they pour into them with training, with education, and ultimately with being in a tangible example of the love of Christ. And they create job opportunities for them and they make these beautiful products. And we, this is where Bought Beautifully comes in, and you guys, we bring these products to a larger market. Because the reality is for Benson, he can make these purses, but not many people in Haiti can buy them. We can rescue girls from forced prostitution, but if they don't have different jobs, they will go back to that. And when we look at that context of the world, we, oh, I'm going to get teary-eyed, sorry. We are the people who have the, the position and the power and the ability right now to make an impact in that, to change that. And so we bought beautifully partners with 40 different, 44 different ministries around the globe who are doing this to bring their products to a larger market so that we can use our purchasing power to make a difference. And so you guys have said yes to this opportunity. And so next weekend, we'll be popping up in the foyer of your church out here um, with a variety of these products from all of these different partners. Um, and if you go to the next slide, I don't want to. Uh, okay, yeah. And then the next one. Uh, okay. So with a variety of these different products so that you guys can come and use your Christmas shopping to change the world. Um, and... For those of you guys who were here last year, we did this pop-up, and Restoration's purchases in three days provided the equivalent of two full-time jobs for our partners around the globe. That's amazing. It's so exciting, and we're dreaming about what if it could be four? What if we could double it this year? Um, and so that's our, our dream, our hope. We will be here on Friday night. We will be here Saturday, and we will be here Sunday. We'll be popped up there with cute products, and I promise these products are ones that can compete with what you'll see at Target. These purses, this bracelet I'm wearing, my necklaces, my family always has to do a lot of um, promo for me. They're all wearing the products. Um, and we'll be here with these so that you guys um, can come and use your purchasing power uh, this holiday season to make an impact. And so I'm pulling up that scripture verse again um, from Esther because... Um, I think as you guys are seeing how God can work and learning, God can work in incredibly diverse ways and through diverse random means, through 
all the things that Esther went through. He can use sex contests, sorry my language. He can use parties. He can use whatever means he wants to bring hope, to bring restoration. And he can use shopping too. And so um, that's what we're doing. We're going to use our shopping to, to do that. So if you go to the next slide. Um, oh, you're probably wondering, does this really matter? Does it make a difference? You guys, the answer is yes. And this is Michael Ainge. This is one story of countless stories. And if you go to the next one, I'll tell her story. The biggest reason why I began making jewels was to support my son, Dawlins. He is the love of my life, and my greatest duty in this life is to be an excellent mother to my children. I haven't had an opportunity to meet all the people who buy our designs, but I want to personally thank them for supporting the future of my family and my country. So in 2010, there was the earthquake in Haiti, which destroyed just countless communities and lives. Michael Ainge lost everything, her home, a huge chunk of her friends and family, the father of her son, and most of her belongings. She lived in a tent for three years. She cared for her son, Darwin's, patiently looking for work and invested every dime she made on his education. She came to Hades Jewels, which is one of our partners on the ground there, asking if she could wash clothes. We didn't have any clothes that needed to be washed, but we did have plenty of work. Michael Ainge began making jewelry, and after just three months, she started earning around $1,000 per month and had the money to invest in land. She built two beautiful homes overlooking Port-au-Prince Bay, one for herself and the other for her friend. So as soon as she was rising out of poverty, she didn't keep investing in herself. She invested in others. So one for her friend who was also living in a tent and couldn't afford to build her own home. And she's also now started a few companies of her own. So when we look and we think, oh, a $10, $25 necklace, a, a $10 bracelet, does it really matter? For people whose circumstances are so different than our own, it really does matter. These purchases change lives. So um, join us next week in doing that. So we have already asked for volunteers. We have a great crew has, who has signed up to help us set up and help us staff the event. But of course, the more people we have come, the more impact we'll make. So we are asking you guys, if you want to, there's postcards on the, on the chairs. Um, and if you want to help us spread the word. So the biggest thing you guys can do to help this event this week is invite people. It'll be a really fun, it's Acker Night, so it's music, music, coffee, and shopping. Like how often do you get to do that for, <laughs> what you're, uh, for your church or your faith? So that's pretty exciting. So if you guys wanna, if you wanna go to the next slide just so we can, oh, well, we can skip that one, next one. So if you guys can invite people, we were gonna challenge people to personally invite five people because the personal invite was what makes a difference. We have a Facebook page and we're running ads and stuff, but if you personally invite someone they're likely to come. And so we feel like if the church took that challenge, we could see a huge impact. And then to show, next slide, to just to tell the dates, um, we will be here the 13th for, for, to 8, the 14th, 8 to 3, and the 15th, 8 to 1. You can bring your friends, your family, colleagues, um, and we would love to see you guys there. All right, do you mind if I pray quick? Okay. Dear Father God, we just thank you so much um, for this church. We thank you for Restoration's um, continually, continual heart to serve and to say yes to you and to say yes to opportunities, God. And we thank you how you long to use us, God, that you long to use each one of us to be the hands and feet of Christ in so many ways, in all the ways, all the areas of our life, from how we live to how we shop to how we talk, um, God, that you just want to infuse everything we do with you and that you want to use us as agents of hope. So Lord, we just pray for your presence and your spirit over this, um, this community. We pray over the leadership. We pray over um, every single person's here and ask that you just fill us with your spirit. And we pray for this event that's coming this weekend and that it can just be a beautiful offering and an incredible way to support our brothers and sisters around the globe. Amen.
Will you thank Emily for me? Uh oh, I got it. I mean, that really is something that's so easy to do. You don't have to invite them to uh, listen to me on a Sunday. You just get to invite them to coffee and shopping and, and music, especially on Friday nights. So Nate's been really excited all month about Acker. And we're, uh, yeah, it'll just be fun to celebrate with each other Christmas and embrace the spirit. If you've not participated in Acker downtown and especially here, uh, it really is just so unique and such a, a great opportunity. And so we're looking to forward to spending time together. I do want to let you know this. I've been pushing pretty hard the last three to four weeks for us as a church body to be able to staff the event for Bought Beautifully as well as staff the event for Christian Family Care's Adoptive and uh, Foster Families Christmas Party, which will be uh, next Saturday morning. And I think we filled like 50-something volunteer slots for this next weekend, just you guys. So you did an incredible job with that. That's really just encouraging. And my hope is that we can embrace Emily's request to invite people. That's easy. And that we can be a blessing for the whole next year to, to help people become human the way they're made to be, that, that Jesus... Uh, created us to be, that he died and saved us to be. And so looking forward to that, and thank you for the role that you all have played. Uh, we're going to dive into Esther chapters 5 through 7 in just a second. Before that, one other announcement is that uh, this Christmas Eve, we are going to do something a little bit different. We're going to try to get both services together and pack it in here for just one gathering at 5.30 p.m. We will have our kids' classroom open for, I believe, ages four and under, ballpark. Um, if you want your kids to go in, they can. Uh, but really, we're viewing this as kind of just a, a family gathering, an opportunity to be together, to sing, to celebrate. We'll have a candlelight service at 5.30 p.m. on December 24th. And so with that said, we're going to dive into the book of Esther. Um, as I've been reading this week and kind of just diving into the scriptures, what I, what I do on a weekly basis is kind of read through the, the area or the passage we'll be in, and in that process, decide how much we'll actually go through, how many chapters or verses or whatnot. And I kind of just couldn't stop reading uh, this week. So I went all the way from the beginning of chapter 5 to the end of chapter 7, and as I was processing that, I think... I was just reminded that we believe this is God's word and that it's, it's alive and it's active and that the Holy Spirit uses it to actually speak to us and move in our lives. I actually believe that. And sometimes it needs less commentary and just to be heard. And so this morning, I'm going to spend a good amount of time just reading from the scriptures from Esther 5 to 7, and then I'm going to kind of complement it with uh, some of the prophet's words in the Old Testament and some of the, the epistles in the New Testament, the authors there kind of collaborating because what we see is that in the scriptures, it almost functions like the different musicians of an orchestra. They, they each have their, their unique role to play and their part in the song, but they form together just this one beautiful moment and sound. And, and God is consistent throughout the scriptures. And so hopefully that's the idea. You'll, uh, you'll see that this morning. If you're new with us, I want to spend just a minute, though, catching you up on, on where we're at, where we find ourselves in the story of Esther. And so the Bible as a whole tells the story of a relationship between God and his people, and it's not a very good relationship. It's very one-sided. God is always faithful and in control, 
loving and forgiving, and his people continue to reject him, walk away from him, and not want anything to do with him. But time after time, when they're in trouble, they call out, he hears their cry, and he saves them. And it's fascinating that when he saves them, he almost always uses people, and he almost always uses the least likely people to be heroes. It's the Davids versus the Goliaths. It's uh, the story after story where this person should not be capable of doing much. But God's very intentional with that to put himself on display so that we know we can't save ourselves. But in the least likely, likely situations and the worst ones, he always is in control. He's always faithful and he's always loving. And that's where we find ourselves in the book of Esther. God's people have walked away from him once again. They've been taken as, as captives and, and exiles. And Esther, the, the, the character in this story, in this account, is experiencing life in a way that is not meant to be. Life not in a way that God designed it. It's very broken. It starts with her people being ripped away from their homes and their lands, watching their temple, their families be, be literally torn apart, watching murder and families separated. And very, very quickly after that, her parents die, maybe in that process or maybe a couple years later. And so Esther's witnessed this horrendous kind of taking over of her people. She's witnessed death. She has no parents. Her cousin Mordecai adopts her, and they live in a culture filled with rampant racism to, to the point that Mordecai, her caretaker, says, do not tell anybody your ethnicity because it's that dangerous. And then on top of that, she's forced as she grows up into this sex contest and into a sexual relationship with the king where she has no control or power. And so Esther's really not this, like, romantic beautiful, happy story. It's actually pretty dark and broken and gruesome and filled with a lot of evil. Yet what we see in the midst of that is that as she deals with the worst of the worst, broken moments and situations and a ton of tears and questions and wondering what in the world is God doing, God continues to provide his favor. In the midst of the worst and the darkest moments, he shows up again and again, so much so that, that in a moment when a law has been decreed because an enemy of the Jewish people has decided to annihilate them, to, to create a moment of genocide where they will all be killed, women, children, and men, it just so happens that now the kingdom of Persia has a Jewish queen. They just don't know it. And that's where we pick up in our story I want to reread Esther chapter 4, verses 15 through 17. Mordecai, Esther's caretaker, her cousin who adopted her, is pleading with her to go before the king. But he knows, as well as she does, that to, to go to the king without being requested or summoned can result in death. If he is not happy with her coming when he doesn't want her to, she will receive the death penalty. And so this is literally a life or death moment. And here's her response to him after some, some arguing and, and discussion she says this to Mordecai, go and assemble all the Jews who can be found in Susa and fast for me. Don't eat or drink for three days, day or night. I and my female servants will also fast in the same way. After that, I will go to the king, even if it is against the law. If I perish, I perish. She's saying, I'm placing my life and the lives of all of our people in God's hands in this moment. If I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went and did everything Esther had ordered him to. And so it's important for us in this moment to recognize this. The entire book of Esther does not mention the name of God once. 
It's left out. It's the only book of the Bible that way, which is really fascinating. And it's very intentional because even where his name is not known, his people call out to him. They spend three days and nights, this is Esther's request, calling out the name of Yahweh God, who, who Jesus becomes in the, the New Testament in the form of man. They call out to this God, and what we read is the account of what he does next. To, to this point in our time together through the book of Esther, what we've really been focusing on is God as the main character. He's always in control. He's perfectly loving, and he's forever faithful. Today we'll continue that theme, but we're going to slightly kind of alter the angle of our discussion in this way, in, in the way that the author of Esther does. And we're going to ask this question. What is the name of your God or your gods? The, the person or the things that you look to, that you depend on, that, that maybe you lean on, what, what names, name or names, do your gods go by? And is it actually Jesus? Because initially, in this room, we're probably going to say, yeah, it's Jesus. But, but I have a hunch that a lot of us actually have this little compartment for Jesus in the spiritual and the religious compartment of our lives. And so we call out his name when we need him for something. But in the rest of our lives, most of our lives, he's not really God. And so that's the question that we're going to pose this morning. We'll begin reading in chapter 5, verse 1. On the third day, they've been fasting and praying. Esther dressed up in her royal clothing and stood in the inner courtyard of the palace facing it. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the royal courtroom facing its entrance. Okay, so she's fasted. She's been mourning and in lament. But now she's changed her clothes. She's looking royal. She puts on her best. She's embracing her position. We talked last week about doing what you can with what you have where you are. And that's what Esther's doing in this moment. And this is this life or, or death moment. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the royal courtroom facing its entrance and she approaches. As soon as the king saw Queen Esther standing in the courtyard, she won his approval. The king extended the gold scepter in his hand toward Esther and she approached and touched the tip of the scepter, symbolizing he's embracing her and accepting her in this moment. He says, what is it, Queen Esther? The king asked her, whatever you want, even to half the kingdom will be given to you. Think about how crazy that is. Even up to half the kingdom. She doesn't ask for anything yet, but what he offers is half the kingdom. This Jewish woman who is not known as a Jewish woman because she lives in a racist uh, culture that probably will kill her for that. In fact, the uh, annihilation of her entire nation has been planned. There's a date set by Haman, the enemy of the Jews. They've set a date where everyone is going to murder all the Jewish people. They don't know Esther's Jewish, but the king offers the Jewish queen in a Persian empire half of the kingdom. That's pretty wild. Whatever you want, up to half the kingdom, he says. Verse 4, if it pleases the king, Esther replied, may the king and Haman come today to the banquet I have prepared for them. The king commanded, hurry and get Haman so we can do as Esther has requested. So the king and Haman went to the banquet Esther had prepared. While drinking the wine, the king asked Esther again, Whatever you ask will be given to you. Whatever you want, even to half the kingdom, will be done. Esther answered, this is my petition and my request. If the king approves of me, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and perform my request, may the king and Haman come to the banquet I will prepare for them tomorrow. I will do what the king has asked. 
Joel 2.32 kind of speaks into this. The prophet Joel says this, Then everyone who calls on the name of Yahweh will be saved. For there will be an escape for those on Mount Zion, the people of God, and in Jerusalem, as the Lord promised among the survivors the Lord calls. We continue in verse 9 of chapter 5. That day, Haman left full of joy and in good spirits. But when Haman saw Mordecai at the king's gate, and Mordecai didn't rise or tremble in fear at his presence, Haman was filled with rage toward Mordecai. Yet Haman controlled himself and went home. He sent for his friends and his wife, Zeresh, to join him. Then Haman described for them his glorious wealth and his many sons. He told them all how the king had honored him and promoted him in rank over the other officials and the royal staff. What's more, Haman added, Queen Esther invited no one but me to join the king at the banquet she had prepared. I am invited again tomorrow to join her with the king. Still, none of this satisfies me since I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate all the, t- all the time. His gods, the, the Persian gods had provided pretty well for him. His gods of honor, of power, of control, of influence, of manipulation had done him well. He's second in command. He's wealthy. He has many sons. In fact, in the previous chapters, the king had provided Haman with the signet ring, symbolizing power to make any law he wants, to do whatever he wishes. He's also the only one in the kingdom whom the law does not apply to, that if someone comes unsummoned to the king, they'll face the death penalty. Haman stands alone in this culture. He's above all, and he likes to let everybody know it. Proverbs 16, 18 says this. Pride comes before destruction and an arrogant spirit before a fall. Haman says, still none of this satisfies me. He has seemingly everything, yet his gods can't satisfy him. That's interesting. He has all the money, he has all the power, he's got the family, he has control, but he's not satisfied. Still, none of this satisfies me since I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate all the time. His wife Zeresh and all his friends told him, have them build a gallows 75 feet high. Ask the king in the morning to hang Mordecai on it. Then go to the banquet with the king and enjoy yourself. The advice pleased Haman. So he had the gallows constructed. 75 feet high. Don't picture a hanging like from a western. But rather what would happen is a pole would be built 75 feet high and Mordecai would be impaled on it as a display in front of everybody of his shame that would also honor Haman. That's a pretty significant deal. And so he has people because he has power and money working on it that very moment. We pick up in verse 6, chapter 6, excuse me. That night, sleep escaped the king. So he ordered the book recording daily events to be brought and read to the king. They found the written report of how Mordecai had informed on Bigthana and Thoresh, two eunuchs who guarded the king's entrance when they planned to assassinate King Ahasuerus. And so, I don't know about you, but often I can't sleep at night either. And I don't request somebody to come read a book to me. I don't think Chelsea would be happy if I woke her up to read a book to me. But we have this awesome thing called Netflix and cell phones. And so I can entertain myself or bore myself so I fall back to sleep. The king did not have that option. And so what he does is he calls somebody, because he has many servants, to go and read 
a history book. It's specifically the history of his kingdom, of what he's done in his time. The king inquired, what honor and special recognition have been given to Mordecai for this act? The king's personal attendants replied, nothing has been done for him. That's very interesting. The, the king's going to recognize in this moment that that's not okay. In this culture of honor and shame, since Mordecai saved the king's life, he should have been honored for that. But he wasn't. You could, you could imagine, too, that in this moment when that happens, when Mordecai saves the king's life, he would probably be upset or at least frustrated that he doesn't receive anything from it. You'd think the king would be thankful, but nothing happens. That moment would have been frustrating. But God knew what he was doing because God was going to use that moment of frustration, of injustice to save his people. Because as it, as it just so happens, on the night that Esther comes to the king, as it just so happens on the, the night that Haman comes before his family and friends and brags about all that he has going on, on the night that he says, hey, let's build these 75-foot gallows to impale Mordecai on, as it just so happens, it's that night that the king can't sleep. And as it just so happens, it's that night that they bring this book for him to be able to fall back to sleep because he'll probably be bored by it. And as it just so happens, they turn to a story, something that was written and journaled in this from over five years ago. It's not like they turned to the last page. They turned five years back. Mordecai had saved the king five years ago. And you go, is that coincidence? No. But in a book where the name of God is not written, God's showing us something very intentional. Even where his name is not known, he's still in control. Psalm 34, verses 1 through 15 says this. I will praise the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. I will boast in the Lord. The humble will hear and be glad. Proclaim with me the Lord's greatness. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me. And delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant with joy. Their faces are never, will never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him from all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. Taste and see that the Lord is good. How happy is the man who takes refuge in him. You who are his holy ones, fear Yahweh. For those who fear him lack nothing. Young lions lack food and go hungry. But those who seek the Lord will not lack any good thing. Come, children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is the man who delights in life, loving a long life to enjoy what is good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from deceitful speech. Turn away from evil and do what is good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their cry for help. For the past three days, God's people have been crying out his name, and he clearly hears them. And continue. The king asked, who is in the courts? Now Haman was just entering the outer court of the palace to ask the king to hang Mordecai on the gallows he had prepared for him. The king's attendants answered him, Haman is there, standing in the court. Have him enter, the king ordered. Haman entered, and the king asked him, what should be done for the man the king wants to honor? Haman thought to himself, who is it the king would want to honor more than me? He continues to think only of himself, which is going to prove to be very dangerous. The, 
Haman thought to himself, who is it the king would want to honor more than me? Haman told the king, for the man the king wants to honor, thinking of himself, have them bring a royal garment that the king himself has worn and a horse that the king himself has ridden, which has a royal diadem on its head. Put the garment and the horse under the charge of one of the king's most noble officials. Have them clothe the man the king wants to honor. Parade him on the horse through the city square and proclaim before him, this is what is done for the man the king wants to honor. Haman's excited because he's about to have his very own parade. The king told Haman, he likes his idea, hurry and do just as you propose. Haman's thinking, yes, take a garment and a horse. For Mordecai the Jew, who is sitting at the king's gate, do not leave out anything you have suggested. So Haman took the garment and the horse. He has no choice. He clothed Mordecai and paraded him through the city square, crying out before him, this is what is done for the man the king wants to honor. I was rereading this this morning, and I was, I was picturing something like the parade yesterday just out on this street. There's a city square, and you know what? It's probably not all that different from ours. This was the, the hub of the community and the culture in this moment. And so you can picture Haman leading a horse with Mordecai on it. And as he's leading this horse, people Haman knows see him. This is not random people. People that Haman has talked to and said, I hate Mordecai and all Jewish people. People that Haman has bragged to and said, I have all the wealth and I'm the greatest and the one the king wants to honor. Not only does he have to parade him around, but he has to proclaim to everybody, this is what is done for the man the king wants to honor. And again, in this book where his name's not mentioned once, God is clearly putting on display, I am the one who is in control. The, the rest of that psalm, Psalm 34, reads this, beginning in verse 16. The face of the Lord is set against those who do what is evil, to erase all memory of them from the earth. The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears and delivers them from all their troubles. The Lord is near the brokenhearted. He saves those crushed in spirit. Many adversities come to the one who is righteous. That's important. That's going to happen. Many adversities come to the one who is righteous, but... The Lord delivers him from them all. He protects all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Evil brings death to the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be punished. The Lord redeems the life of his servants, and all who take refuge in him will not be punished. The story continues after this parade in verse 12. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman, overwhelmed, hurried off for home with his head covered. Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened. His advisors and his wife Zeresh said to him, Since Mordecai is Jewish and you have begun to fall before him, you will not overcome him because your downfall is certain. While they were still speaking with him, the eunuchs of the king arrived and rushed Haman to the banquet Esther had prepared. There's a really interesting detail in that last sentence. See, to this point, as we discussed, Haman has the signet ring of the king. He's fully in control. He calls the shots. He can go to the king whenever he wants. He doesn't do what people say to do. People do what he tells them to do. But listen to the difference with, uh, 
in the way that the author writes in verse 14. While they were still speaking with him, the eunuchs of the king arrived and rushed Haman to the banquet Esther had prepared. He is no longer in control. The man who seemingly had all the control, the man who was going to end the Jewish people, now is being forced from one thing to the next. 1 Peter 5, 5-7 says this. In the same way you, younger men, be subject to the elders. And all of you, all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Because God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that he may exalt you at the proper time. Casting all your care on him because he cares about you. There's a couple keys in this passage. The first is this, those two words, proper time. As we follow Jesus, as we journey through the broken and beautiful of life, you need to know this. We don't know what the proper time is. Jesus says he will exalt you. He will provide you. He cares for you. He loves you so much he gave up his own life for you. But you don't know when the proper time is. You will go through adversities and experience brokenness and trials, just like Mordecai did when he wasn't honored in that moment. But at the proper time, God will exalt you. That can be hard to not know what God is doing, why God is doing it, or when he might step up in the way we need him to. But in the proper time, he will. And then this, casting all your care on him. Could have just said casting your care on him. It doesn't. It says casting all of your care on him. This goes back to that compartmentalization I was talking about. I think it's so tempting for us in our moments in this culture to, to compartmentalize Jesus and say, hey, we come to this building and we do this church thing on Sundays, and so Jesus is good for that, and I really, I really don't want to go to hell, so Jesus is good for that. And you know what? If I'm really kind of in trouble, Jesus is probably good for that too. I can throw up a prayer. And Jesus has zero interest in that. Jesus says, I am both Lord and Savior. It's a package deal. He is creator, Savior, and sustainer. He's the designer of all of life, not merely the spiritual. And so what we're reading from Peter is this. Cast all of your care, everything, for your salvation, for your spirituality, for your marriage and your parenting, for your vocation, for your finances, for your health. Everything we are supposed to present at the feet of Jesus, the only name worthy of our worship. And so again, I, I ask you the question that we started with this morning. What is the name of the God that you depend on? Is it really Jesus? Do you cast all of your cares on him? Or is it just sometimes, in some ways, and with some things? Chapter 6 Actually, chapter 7, verse 1. The king and Haman came to feast with Esther the queen. Haman was excited about this just 24 hours before. Once again, on the second day while drinking wine, the king asked Esther, just to, to, to imprint it more into our minds, Queen Esther, whatever you ask will be given to you. Whatever you seek, even to half the kingdom will be done. Queen Esther answered, If I have obtained your approval, my king, and if the king is pleased, Spare my life, this is my request, and spare my people, this is my desire. For my people and I have been sold out to destruction, death, and extermination. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept silent. Indeed, the trouble wouldn't be worth burdening the king. 
King Ahasuerus spoke up and asked Queen Esther, who is this? And where is the one who would devise such a scheme? Esther answered, the adversary and enemy is this vile Haman. Haman stood terrified before the king and queen. Angered by this, the king arose from where they were drinking wine and went to the palace garden. Haman remains to beg Queen Esther for his life because he realized the king was planning something terrible for him. Just as the king returned from the palace garden to the house of wine drinking, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. He's begging for his life, but it's look like, it looks like he's doing something else. The king exclaimed, would he actually violate the queen while I am in the palace? As soon as the statement left the king's mouth, Haman's face was covered. Harbona, one of the royal eunuchs, said, there was a gallows 75 feet tall at Haman's house that he made for Mordecai, who gave the report that saved the king, which he just happened to read about that night, even though it happened five years before. The king commanded, hang him on it. They hanged Haman on the gallows he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the king's anger subsided. Haman's gods had provided for him to that point, but how quickly the kingdom of any other god crumbles. Faith in any other God always fails. It's not a matter of if, but when. But here's the thing we have to understand about other gods. They're very real and they can provide. I'm thinking of it almost as if you're driving a beautiful, fast sports car or race car and it's beautiful and it's fast, and so you're in the race, and you are ahead of everybody in this car. Everything is going good. Nobody's going to catch you. It looks like you're going to win the race. This is, this is what other gods provide for us. They did for Haman. He had all the power, all the control, the money, the honor, the family, the opportunity. But what we don't realize is that that car doesn't have brakes, and eventually you crash and burn. These, these gods provide the different gods we look to could be money, our career, maybe identity with our children, relationships we depend on. There's all kinds of different gods that we look to. They're the things that we actually lean on when we need something, we go to them, to that thing or to that person. And so again, I'm gonna ask, what's the name of the God that you call to? Is it actually Jesus? The, the book of Esther is provided for us as a warning. Now, out of love, God warns us and says, listen, faith in any other God will always fail. The kingdom of any other God will always crumble. And so out of love, he says, listen, even where my name is not known or even where my name is rejected or rebelled against, I'm still in control. But I have to wonder if we, if you and I, hear those warnings on May 22nd in 2011 in Missouri, a tornado came through, killing 158 people and injuring more than 1,000 others. And that specific tornado, and more so the kind of sociology and communication plan and culture has really been studied because that's a really devastating number for a tornado. And so they studied this and said, what went wrong? Why were so many people killed and so many others injured from this tornado? And through those studies, this article in the Washington Post shared that there's a few different implications or reasons for this happening 
The first is that people became desensitized to the sirens and warnings they heard. They had heard enough sirens and warnings without a tornado actually causing enough damage that they were trained over time unintentionally to ignore those sirens. The the author wrote this, kind of painting the picture. She said, I was at a pizza joint in Lincoln, Nebraska, referring to another time, when a woman ran up to the bar and announced that the National Weather Service had just issued a tornado warning. It was mid-tornado season, and I followed her out the front door. In retrospect, maybe not the best plan, where I could hear a loud siren. The sky was dark and ominous. I headed back inside and into the basement for shelter. I was the only person doing that and was feeling self-conscious. I called my husband. I'm either the idiot from out of town or the sole survivor, I told him. It's fascinating. Uh, Another one of the the factors is what the, the population, the majority of people do. See, in our moment, people, many people, most people don't take Jesus seriously. They they can hear warnings. They can hear sirens. He doesn't really matter. Or maybe Jesus is just kind of best as this, like, life insurance policy. Rather not go to to hell. I'd like to go to heaven, so let's kind of be a little bit about that. And it just doesn't work that way. Do you hear the warnings? Do you hear the sirens? Because that's what, that's what we're offered in this book. But make no mistake, Satan is our adversary. He's alive and well and working and powerful and deceptive. And he's been working hard training you. Satan has been working hard training you to be desensitized to the sirens and the warnings. So that when the tornado actually comes... You're not ready. Jesus gives us a, uh, a similar warning in Matthew chapter 7. He's just been teaching and performing miracles. He's proclaimed himself as the Messiah, as God. And he ends his Sermon on the Mount with these words. He says this, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a sensible man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the rivers rose, and the winds blew and pounded that house. Yet it didn't collapse because its foundation was on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the rivers rose, the winds blew and pounded that house, and it collapsed, and its collapse was great. And that geographic location, flooding was seasonal. It happened on an annual basis. Again, it was not a matter of if, but when. Almost like the monsoons for us. The end of summer means monsoons are coming. For them, it meant floods were coming. And so that really kind of paints this in an even different picture. Like, not just foolish because your house shouldn't be built on sand, but you know that every single year the floods will come. That's a different degree of foolishness. And the warning Jesus is giving is about his kingdom versus the kingdom of any other God. What he's saying is just like we have seasonal flooding every single year, in the same way The floods of life, the brokenness, the brutality, the trauma will happen. The other gods that you look to, they'll provide for a while. It's a good ride. But eventually they all will crash and burn. And so Jesus, out of love, provides this warning. And we have to ask ourselves the question, do we have ears to hear? That's what Jesus says again and again. Do we have ears to hear? Where do we begin today with 
Esther 4, 15 through 17. What did Esther and Mordecai and the people do? They called on the name of the Lord, and he answered. Are you calling on the name of Jesus in all of life? Do you cast all of your cares on him, or maybe only some? I'll end with this because sometimes I struggle with my, my concept of who God is. I think about him and I pray to him and I have an image in mind or, or maybe a character, right? It's almost like when you have a conversation with somebody, you can see their body language. I think we can't obviously see God's body language, but sometimes we, we perceive it and we feel it and I wonder, is God annoyed with me? Does he actually want to hear from me? Does he care? Can he even do anything about it? Maybe those are some of the questions you ask at times. I'm reminded of when my son wakes up at like two in the morning and he cries out. He goes, Daddy! what? He goes, I need water. And I go, you have three water bottles. And he goes, no, I need the blue one. <laughs> okay. And I go get him the blue water bottle and I go back to bed and it takes me like 25 minutes to fall asleep. And just when I do, I hear daddy. And he goes, can you sleep with me? And I go, no, I need to, I'm going to go sleep with mommy. He goes, why do you sleep with mommy? Because I want to, and the bed's bigger and more comfortable. And then he'll, he'll, he'll cry out again like 20 minutes later, Daddy! I go, you need to go to bed. We're shutting the door like this is over. Dad needs to sleep. And I'm done. And sometimes I think we have this, this image of God, like there's going to be a moment where God's done, that God gets irritated and he's annoyed. And like you need to know he isn't. He just stands in the hallway of life waiting, desperately longing for you to call his name. And he's not annoyed and he's not worried because he already knows all your brokenness. He knows how much of a mess up you are, how often you screw up, all the bad things. He knows every little detail. So he's not surprised. When, when you call, he goes, I know. And he just wants to hear you call his name again and again. And he meets us there with love every time. Titan wants you to believe the opposite, to be desensitized to the sirens and to think God doesn't love, but he does. So are we calling out the name of Jesus or are you calling out the name of a different God that's going to fail? Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for the incredible grace and mercy and privilege we have to call your name. God, for the sake of our, our marriages, our family, our parenting, for the sake of the city of Prescott and those in need, for the, the sake of the people in this world that desperately need you, God. I thank you that we can call on your name. God, as we, we journey through the broken and beautiful of life and as we await the proper time when you will exalt, when you will come back, when you, you will restore all brokenness to beautiful, give us strength and endurance. Give us eyes to see what you want us to see and ears to hear and hearts to feel, God. Protect us from the lies of the enemy. May we know that you are good. May we call out your name in all of life. May we carry your name well. In Jesus' name we pray. If you're new with us, we, uh, we continue to worship in response in three ways every week. The first is through reflection. And so I'd encourage you to just reflect on who or what your gods are. What names do they go by? Do you actually truly call out to Jesus in all of life? Or do you kind of pick and choose where you want to call him? He wants you to call his name in everything, to cast all of your cares upon him. Reflect a lot in the next couple of minutes. The second way that we respond in worship is by taking communion, and there's two stations here in front of me and, and one in the back of the room, and as we take communion and we dip the bread into the cup, 
whether individually or, or with your family or community, what we're recognizing is that Jesus has invited us to call his name and that when we call his name, he is victorious over all, that he's done the work, that he's forgiven and that he loves you and that he is always in control. And so find hope and courage in his name as we take communion. And then lastly, we respond by, by giving. This is part of our worship. This is entrusting his name, his character, and his goodness with our finances, which we often cling to tightly to say, God, I trust you. I call to your name in all of life. And so there's two boxes for giving in the back of the room, or you can give at restorationaz.org. But let's now continue to worship in our response.